Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 19, which begins with Commissioner Labatouche wishing Fifi good luck, and it ends with Fifi talking to Max at a nighttime pileup. So, if I had to describe this minute in two words, I would use the two words jumbled mess. Yes, I was going to say hot mess. (laughs) Like... Mess is definitely a good way to describe it, just because, like, we start off in the Halls of Justice, we cut to an exterior nighttime shot, and there's just so much happening, and it almost, like, <laughs> it almost hurts my brain trying to keep track of it all, and you know how they have that that thing where you make a bunch of decisions in the day, and then by the time you get home, you just have no mental energy left? Like, this yes. was a very mentally taxing episode. And I don't even feel like I've got done a good job of digging through it, but we'll see how well it comes out <laughs> as yeah. we discuss it. So obviously, we start off this minute with Labatouche heading down the stairs with all of his tent kendo gear, and he's telling Fifi, good luck! And Commissioner Labatouche, like we said last yesterday, is only in this movie for 30 seconds. He's played by an actor named Jonathan Hardy, who died back in 2012. He was 71. He is top four on IMDb. Number one most well-known role for him was 2001's Moulin Rouge. He played the man in the moon. Okay, I was going to ask, like, when are we finally going to get someone besides Mel Gibson who Mad Max isn't their number one on their top four? So yay, we got one. Can you really blame him, though? Literally any role where he shows up for more than half a minute would be more recognizable than this one. Yes. So number two, which is pretty cool. I've never watched the TV show Farscape. It ran from 1999 to 2003. But he was the voice of a puppet. And the puppet's name was Dominar Rigel 16, which I think it might be more accurately described as Dominar being his title, Rigel being his name, and then he's like Rigel the 16th. It doesn't say it specifically on the listing, but I was able to glean as much. Okay. Uh, Number three is finally when we see Mad Max on his list of most recognizable roles, and then... His number four is a 2003 movie called Ned Kelly, where he plays a character named The Great Orlando. Uh, Ned Kelly, that sounds familiar. It was another movie filmed in Australia. In fact, tomorrow when we talk about the town that the the bikers roll into, Mm -hmm. Ned Kelly, part of that movie was also filmed in that town. So just a cool little bit of trivia there. So Hardy was never in an episode of Homicide. He doesn't have that link. What a shame. But he was in three episodes of the other Australian criminal justice series, Prisoner Cell Block H. He was also in an episode of the Mission Impossible TV show in 1989. Um, He accumulated 60 acting credits over a 40-year career before his death. That's movies and television. So Labatouche leaves, heads down the stairs, and he is gone forever. I'd like to point out that as he's walking down the stairs, he puts the helmet on. What was it called? 
A kendo helmet is called a men. A men. Okay, so he puts that on. I imagine, considering it's a protective helmet, that it does not have the best visibility. <laughs> and those stairs look narrow and steep. Yeah. So that seems like a pretty dumb move. I agree. Because I imagine it's kind of like looking through a colander. Like a wire colander. Yes. I feel like he did it for flair. Yeah. As a, a mic drop, if you will. A power move? Yes. Be like, I have said something cool. I'm going to put on my helmet and walk away and you can't and respond to me. fall down the stairs. Maybe that's why we don't see him anymore. Maybe. Maybe behind the scenes, well, not behind the scenes of the movie, but behind the scenes of the story, he falls down the stairs and breaks his neck because he can't see where he's going. Mm-hmm. But as he's walking away, Fifi is still standing over by the window and he mutters to himself, he says... Thanks, Labatouche. You're a real human being. <laughs> and this reminded me of a deleted scene from Star Wars A New Hope. There is a part of that movie that was cut out where Han Solo makes it back to the Millennium Falcon and Jabba is waiting there with a cadre of bounty hunters. And they have this little exchange and they come to a bit of an understanding, but Jabba threatens Han Solo. You know, if you double cross me again, there's going to be a bounty on your head so big, you won't be able to go near a civilized system. And Han turns around and he says, Jabba, you're a wonderful human being. (laughs) (laughs) It it sounds just as sarcastic in that situation as in Fifi saying it here. Mm -hmm. And I just love that that was uh, Star Wars was 1977. Mad Max was filming in 1976 mm-hmm. and then came out in 1979. So these two insults came out very close to each other. Yes. And I feel like I was wondering if there was a, a trend in Hollywood or movies in general where people were using that as an insult. But, you know, when you're trying to search for a specific phrase on Google, it's pretty much useless. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a pretty hard thing to research. Yeah, pretty gross. So he says that under his breath and then we hear this like whooping and hollering coming through the window. So we get this nice little shot close up of the window where Max and Goose are like running across the yard. Well, Max is running. Goose is doing that thing where he flings himself around. Yeah. I have mixed feelings about this little scene. It was really quick, but I, I, it's nice to see them happy and... Their behavior is kind of childlike. Like, that's the sort of thing, like, you're hanging out with your friend when you're 10 years old, and you got a new bike, and, you know, you're really happy about it. It, that, it just felt joyful. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it makes me sad that we haven't experienced yet that same sort of Max being happy with Jesse. Right. We may see some down the road. I don't remember specifically, but the time that we've seen him with Jesse so far, yes, he has behaved in a very loving way towards her, but not necessarily in a very happy way. And that's probably just me, me as a wife reading too much into it, but that's what we're here for. So Exactly. If we're not reading into it, we're not doing our job. Right. <laughs> what I found interesting about this shot as Max and Goose are heading out of the garage is... The last thing we hear from Max is when can we take it for a ride? And then they leave not driving the new car. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, we see Max driving his Interceptor for most of the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like, this was a present. Yeah, and he's not even using it. Like, switch to that car right now. Like, I imagined before I watched this scene that the next time we see Max and Goose, 
they're going to be driving around the V8 Interceptor. Yeah. But apparently not. I don't know why. Yeah. And Goose is like making for the passenger door of the Interceptor. So it kind of looks like Max is getting in his car and he's going to go out on patrol, whatever he's assigned to that day. And apparently Goose is going to accompany him. Obviously, he can't ride his motorcycle in an official capacity right now. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense that he would buddy up with Max. But he's not in uniform. He's only half dressed. Yeah. Like, he's not like, you know, he's not in cop mode. Right. (laughs) He's in goofing off with his buddy mode. Mm -hmm. So it seems a little odd that he'd be getting into the passenger side to go out on patrol. Yeah. What's really strange, and I understand why it happened for narrative reasons, but... It's the morning. It's early because the goose wanted Max there early. Mm -hmm. Well, we smash cut from this shot in the morning outside the window straight to a nighttime crash. We don't get any context for it. It's just smash. Here we are. Blue light flashing, driving Mm -hmm. down the road towards all of these lights and piled up chunks of metal that used to be cars. Yes, it was very jarring. And we have had sudden transitions like that before, but they've felt better. Like when we transitioned from Max leaving the house, he does the sign language thing with Jesse. They have a sweet moment. And then we have a sudden transition to the Halls of Justice. So we've had sudden transitions before, but that one to the Halls of Justice, we were led to it. We knew that that's where Max was going and... The music made us instantly feel like, okay, this is where we are now. The music is what now stands out we are to me. in the the world of the cops and in their environment. There was none of that, none of that sort of transition here. Yeah, when we transitioned from the end of the chase to the beach house, mm-hmm. the lots and lots of music cues. Music changed. Yes, very clear music cue. When we went from Max's house back to the Hall of Justice, big music cue. When we go from the window to the nighttime shot, it's just siren. Yes, which in their defense, even though I'm not a fan of the transition, in their defense, sirens kind of count as music. I guess. So this scene, the nighttime crash, was filmed on the Westgate Freeway. It's actually really close to a bridge that wasn't quite finished completion yet, so they were able to film there without having to worry about stopping traffic because the road wasn't technically done yet. Mm-hmm. So they had a stretch of road, they just... Didn't have to fight anyone for it. Which I'm sure they appreciated some of the stories about them stopping traffic and and stuff. Sounds pretty harrowing. Yes. Yeah. So we see the blue police light driving up. And then as we're driving through this wreckage site, we get a reverse shot on the car. So we see that it's actually Fifi driving the car. And when you start this minute, you don't know why Fifi is driving out to the scene of this crash. We find out... In the next minute why he's there but when you finally find out that he's there to talk to max it's like why did he have to drive all the way out there right like max is busy right now yeah it seems kind of dumb max has work to do like why take all that time i don't know maybe he was sitting back at headquarters and he was bored or something like that but it just seems like a waste of energy it occurs to me i have a note i think it actually i think I think the note actually isn't until next minute but i'll bring it up now because i think this might answer your analysis that Fifi acts very um, fatherly sometimes, protective, but not overprotective. 
So I can easily imagine that he was hearing on the radio about this big pileup. At least two of his guys are there. At least Roop is there. Max is there, which means Goose is probably there and Charlie's probably there. You know, and hearing about how big it was, he probably wanted to go out there and make sure his boys were okay. Mm. And take the opportunity to talk to Max. And it definitely looks like the situation was so hectic and chaotic that... Just having an extra body there would help. I mean, right. we, as soon as Fifi gets out of the car, we're just bombarded with a ton of things that are happening. And even Roop is surrounded by a couple of guys in jumpsuits and helmets. And it's like, who are those guys? And there's dudes in lab coats further back. And it's like, well, who are they? Right. You know, they, And it's also quite possible that they needed somebody with higher authority to come take charge of the scene. Yeah. Because there are so many people there. Authority-wise, Roop and Charlie, Max, and Goose may have just been a little overwhelmed authority-wise. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt that they can handle it. It's possible they just needed more. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, that does help me swallow this a little bit better. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't bump up against this at all. Mm-hmm. Him going there, it felt natural to me. Um, I was hoping in in thinking about the scene before actually analyzing it, I was actually looking forward to it because I thought, hey, there's a lot to look at in the background, and we can learn lots of things and glean lots of things. And I felt very let down. I felt like there actually wasn't that much to glean from the background to make sense from it all. It's just so... Chaotic. Chaotic is an excellent word And for I it. think the uniforms of the people who are there are difficult to distinguish and figure out what they do. Mm-hmm. The the two men in white lab coats are arguing with Roop. I don't think we can really hear what they're saying no, at all. Really. So that doesn't give us any clues. So my best guess with they is that they were paramedics. I don't even know. It's the scene is so but, quick. Yeah, but every, I feel like everybody's wearing white. Yeah. So I have no idea. I do have to say though that in previous minute minutes we have uh, we we've treated Roop kind of harshly and, and judged him quite a bit. That moment where we see him arguing with the two in the lab coats, he pulls away, has a quick, like, two-line conversation with Fifi, just kind of checking in, this is what I know, and then he goes back to whatever it was that he was doing. It seemed slightly, like, professional and authoritative. Well, the boss is around. Right. Um, But I think it's the best showing that we've seen so far of Roop as a cop and behaving like a cop of handling a situation that's in front of him, handling these two arguing men, and and taking care of it. I was, I don't know, it, it seemed the best we've seen from Roop so far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Fifi walks up to Roop, ask him what's, asks him what the situation is. Roop says that Max took out a couple of crazies over the high side, and I guess now, that's what we see here. Now, I think there was a sentence before that. I was kind of counting on you to catch it. Oh, you mean where Fifi says the old meat grinder's humming tonight? Oh, yeah, that. (laughs) That's how he greets Roop. Yeah. Roop is being swarmed by two guys. They're wearing white jumpsuits and they've got like helmets or something like that. And he pushes them away, walks up to Fifi. Fifi says, oh, the old meat grinder's humming tonight. And Roop's like, yeah, Max took out a couple of crazies over the high side. And then he goes back to arguing with the two guys in the jumpsuits that are just swarming him. Yep. And then you can actually see Max in the background and you can see 
Fifi starting to walk towards Max, but the camera pans to the right. Right. Uh, to show us... Some dude with, like, part of his face scraped off. Yes. Which reminded me of the story that Goose was telling back in the diner mm-hmm. about the guy who was missing his face. Yeah, the dude in this shot definitely got off better yes. than the one that was previously mentioned. Yes. Um, but the guy that they showed us was alive. So Yeah, he was, like, muttering to himself. Yeah, or so like that. that was something. I, I guess. I see this shot... And it reminds me of a lot of people who talk about how violent this movie is. And I think this is one of the few examples where we actually see a blood and gore effect. Yes. There's not that many in the movie. But interestingly, it's not paired with the visuals of a violent crash. Like, I mean, the like the action of a violent crash. Like, earlier we had a, a violent crash, but with with no view... With very little, I should say. With very little view of injuries or the aftermath. So you're saying that this is a depiction of violence without the glorification of stunt work and pyrotechnics. Yes. So they're trying to... Pre- it's, li- it's, it's like the other half of the, cra- of the opening crash chase scene. It's what you don't get to see. Yes. Because this, what we see here, is not glamorous. No. You don't get the spectacular crash and the flying metal and things going everywhere. Which I think it's interesting that as we watched it and as we're talking about it, we don't really like this scene. It's chaotic. It's dark. It's jarring. We don't find much interest in it. But we loved the chase scene and the explosion and the car going through the trailer. Like, we loved that stuff. And we had no problem talking for like hours on end about that stuff. Now when once we see the other side of it, we're like, mm, I don't like it. Yeah. There's been a couple of interviews with George Miller where he talks about his time as a doctor working at mm, the Sydney right. Hospital. And as we mentioned before, him and Byron would go out and they would do emergency first aid hospital type paramedic stuff. Right, because everything in Australia is trying to kill you. And this is the kind of thing that they would see. And one of the the ideas behind him making this movie is the idea of showing people what it would be like if what it would be like for someone to experience a terrible highway tragedy in their life. And the original write up for the script was you would follow like a journalist who is researching car crashes and whatnot, and then like something horrific happens to him, and over the time it evolved into Max being a cop and everything like that. This is all from that behind-the-scenes documentary that we watched Mm -hmm. a while back. Yes. And it's interesting that he included this scene because he's drawing on his experience as a medical practitioner seeing these exact type of injuries come into the emergency room. And so he's taking that real-world injury and putting it up on the screen for everyone to see. Right. It's not all... Like you said, pyrotechnics and stunt work and glory, there is another side to it. And here it is staring you right in the face and it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. But we don't sit too long on this shot. No. It's it's pretty fleeting because we transition over to Fifi pulling Max aside to start talking about him. And you mentioned earlier the idea that Fifi is protective of his guys and feels a little paternal towards them. And I think that comes through pretty good when he starts talking to Max. But before we can actually get them talking, they walk behind an, an ambulance. ambulance. It gets in the way. Um, I tried to make sense of... There was some 
there was some noise going on mm-hmm. that caught my attention, but I couldn't make sense of what it was. Yeah, there's, I, I just called it background chatter because I couldn't identify who was talking. Yeah. Uh, there's one statement where they say the hot mops and the towels, and it's like, I think that might be the people in the ambulance talking. There's a woman's voice that says, it's in the food. And it's like, I don't know where that I, person is coming from. Right. It's such a jumbled mess. Yes. And I think a lot of things about this scene are a jumbled mess. It's hard to tell what cars are there for what purpose, mm-hmm. whether they be cop cars, ambulance. I think there's some, a bunch of tow trucks. Yeah. A bunch of tow trucks, around. of course, because they're probably one of the first people on the scene. Yeah. And then, you know, the cars of the victims. So everything is a jumbled mess. And we don't know who is doing what. And we don't know who is saying what. I I think it's all creating this chaos. And all these bits and pieces are coming together to create this chaos. Mm -hmm. That frankly has no payoff. Yeah, it really doesn't. So as they're walking behind this ambulance, um, do you remember when we watched that Cinefix video on YouTube? Where they did the the however many things you may not know about Mad Max. This scene was one of the scenes they talked about. The ambulance that you see, it was borrowed for the day. They didn't necessarily pay for it traditionally. They they gave the person who owned it a flat of beer. They gave him a 24 case and then they got to use it for the day. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of like the... The amount of beer that they bought. It's pretty much the same thing production. as the tow truck drivers. Right. Except the tow truck drivers got paid a flat of beer and $20. Oh, okay. The guy who had the ambulance, since it just had to sit there, he only got the, the flat of beer. Okay. So thank you, Cinefix, for this boom bonus thing we didn't know. (laughs) So back to Max and Fifi, Mm -hmm. the important ones in this scene. So they walk to the edge of the accident scene. Fifi says, hey, Max, another one for your books, eh? And then he asks if he's eaten yet. Yeah, I thought that was odd. I kind of see it. You mentioned earlier this idea of him being paternal. And then I went off on a tangent. Now we're back to it. Yes. But I feel like this is kind of another example of him, you know, looking out for his guys. Being paternal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like that you point out that him asking if he's eaten anything goes in line with the paternal thing. Because my notes and how I kind of saw it was that... Fifi's making small talk to get to a point. Yeah. Um, and he he starts in on that point at the very last line that we hear uh, when he says, hey, you remember that? It's a code three. Yeah, the code three from the other day. Uh, oh. So I, I kind of saw it as he was like gently breaking into what he actually wanted to talk about. Yeah. But it also makes sense. We've seen him act paternal before. He's about to do it again in the next minute. So why wouldn't he ask? Make sure Max has gotten something to eat. Yeah. This kind of got me thinking, though, because he asks if he's eaten. Max says, no, not yet. I'll pick up something later. And it kind of makes me wonder if, like, fast food is still a thing in the Mad Max universe. Like, we saw Goose eating at a diner. Like... Yeah. I don't think they have McDonald's or Burger King or anything like that. But, I mean... I think How many restaurants are left, you know? Yeah, well, certainly as far as like fast food and how we see fast food today didn't exist in that same way back in 1979. At least in Australia it didn't. Because I'm pretty sure McDonald's was was around, was around back in 1979. Yes, but it, but it certainly was not at the level that it is today. Right. So combine that 
with the... Yeah, because McDonald's was founded in 1955, but it was founded in 1955 in America. In America. So I think... Given the time period of 1979, and also the idea that services seem to be somewhat limited. Mm-hmm. Not non-existent. Thing, services exist. They just seem to be a little bit more limited. And Plus, go to any small town, and you can guarantee there's going to be a diner. Yeah. And you can't guarantee there's going to be a McDonald's. So, I imagine that he'll go to a diner. Probably. It also occurred to me that there was... Maybe a little potential that was unfulfilled of Fifi kind of jokingly asking if Max is eaten because he's surrounded by carnage. And that's usually not when you want to think about food. Is it kind of harkening back to that meat grinder comment? Right. But they kind of, if, if that's the case, they don't really pay it off. Yeah. I think it's kind of an example of how they've become desensitized to this idea of horrific vehicular violence. Absolutely. The the way that they talk about this, like the meat grinder and what does Max say in the beginning uh, when um right before the have you eaten line, Max says like another one for the books. Oh yeah, Fifi, Fifi says, "Hey, another one for your books, eh?" Yeah, exactly. It seems very very casual. Yeah. How they treat the gruesomeness of these Highway accidents. Because they see it day in and day out. Yes. It's nothing new to them. Right. Something that's horrific and life-changing for one person for them is a Tuesday. Mm Mm-hmm. What, speaking of days, before the minute cuts off, Fifi says, that code three you ran down a few days ago. And so I mentioned the other day the idea that if the movie does not explicitly say however many days later, then we just go and assume that, you know, rising and setting of the sun tells the time. Right. We don't know, we don't know for sure that this crash is taking place the night of Max getting introduced to the interceptor. Right. In fact, we know that it can't because he says a few days ago. So a few is at least three. Right. So by the setting and rising of the sun, it would be, it would only be the next day. Pretty much. So we know that more time has passed than we've been shown. Right, because the Knight Rider crash would happen in the morning. He goes home at night. Yep. Goes in the next morning to meet up with Goose. Yep, gets the black on black. Based on what we've seen, this would be the next day. He wouldn't have said a few days ago. ago. He would have said yesterday. Yeah. So (laughs) somewhere, somebody got more time. Whether he was home for an extra day that we didn't get to see anything of, or if he's been on patrol this whole time. I'm inclined to think he's been on tr- on patrol this whole time. I agree. I think Jesse being so upset in the minutes that we saw her tells me that he was just there for one night. Yeah. Which just makes it all the more sad that he's not able to spend more time at home. Yep. All right. And I think that brings us to the end of the minute. Yep. So if you're spending time at home, you can go to our website at madmaxminute.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute. Or you could like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Mad Max Minute. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute number 19. We'll see you tomorrow. Motorbikes and men, take me to the end of the dream. Hold on tight.